Hi there, it's great to have you with me today for episode number 28 of the Sports Stories podcast. I'm really looking forward to diving into the world of sports psychology with today's guest, which is Jen Lace. I find Jen a really interesting and intriguing person as she has worked in a number of settings related to sport, most recently gaining a real deep insight and experience over the football academy environment. She's currently at Nottingham Forest Football Club, having previously plied her trade and left a really positive impact at Burnley Football Club Academy. One thing is for certain, Jen really tries to practice what she preaches. Relationships and conversations are key in her working world, and I'm sure you'll really connect and relate to her story. As always, please listen deeply and reflect on the takeaways you gain. I will pose a couple of questions at the end, so please listen in. Also, your feedback and comments are really valued and appreciated. Keep an eye out on the usual social channels and the Sports Stories website for further information and resources to help you. So please take some time for yourself, switch off any distractions, and possibly even get a notepad and pen, because I am sure you will need it. So let me give a very warm welcome to my very special guest, Head of Sports Psychology and Personal Development at Nottingham Forest Football Club, Miss Jen Lace. Jen, it's really great to have you with me on the Sports Stories podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, speak with you today. I I know you've had a a bit of a crazy time over the last few months or so, moving jobs now down at Nottingham Forest. I'm also really excited to hear a little bit about your journey into your role as a sports psychologist at the club and in previous clubs. But I'm also really keen to hear about your insights and your views around some of the the challenges and the opportunities that sports psych are currently facing in this uh, world that we're all living in. A good starting place, though, that I often share and ask with my guests is to uh, just give me a little bit of a, an insight into how you got involved in sport in the early days and currently what sort of excites you about sport and why you've stayed with it. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, you're right. It is a crazy time. I've had a crazy couple of months with a new season at a new club, uh, relocated as well. So different part of the country, which is good. Um, in answer to your question, so how did I get involved was so you do your training route so you do your university degrees and my interest in sports psychology so just to make it really really clear that I don't hold the registered title at the moment so just again for anybody who is going to argue that the title is protected you know really aware my current job title is head of sports psychology and personal development um, I'm a basis accredited sports scientist in the psychology pathway um, so that's where we're at today both. I did do a BPS undergrad and a BPS master's as well in both in sports psychology and then I've just enrolled on the professional doctorate in sports psychology as well so that'll be a new journey but where did it all start um, so I will share a personal experience that I'm not sure I've shared with anybody publicly before but when I was really young 16 17 18 19 I had meat disorder and at the time I was on the national team for trampolining. So, you know, it was a really aesthetically pleasing sport. Um, I've since learned so much about myself around kind of perfectionist behaviors, type A personality, um, genetics and hereditary threads around mental illness as well. But it absolutely consumed my life from 16 to 20. And it was a really strange time for me because I could almost see that I had this distorted eating pattern and I had anorexia and I was really ill, but I couldn't do anything about it at the time. And I used to think, why is this happening to me? And it was a huge control um, element to my daily life. Um, And it was really then that young, like 16, 17, that I'd look at my friends and I'd think, 
why can they eat what they want and I can't? Or, you know, I'd wake up and think I'm going to try and eat these, this, this amount, which would be trying to eat three good meals. And I just, I couldn't do it. Um, so it's really then that I used to think, wow, the power of what is going on inside your mind is, is huge. And then obviously you go on a learning journey and we, you choose your A-levels. Um, and I was really lucky that the Everton Academy used to come to my high school. So they just used to, what now is like a day release program. They used to go to my sports college when I was doing my A-levels. And I got speaking to a guy who worked at Everton as, um, he, I think he was their education officer. He's a legend in the game. His name was Mike Dickinson. And I was kind of saying that, you know, I want to do psychology. I want to do sports psychology. And he said that they had a lady with them who is uh, Dr. Carmel Triggs. And I had, I remember it like it was yesterday. I must have been 17. I was sitting in the lunchroom in my high school and talking to her about what sports psychology looked like in, in a football club. Um, and she kind of helped me choose and probably something we previously spoke about, but still is present with me today is that I always think, I could never do that. That's not me. I would never be that good. So when Carmel was explaining all of these things to me, I was quite detached from it. Um, then I chose to go and do an, an undergrad in sports psychology. Probably wasn't the most focused student, but I knew that I loved practically applying and I knew that I loved working with people. Um, I spent a bit of time um, understanding a different country football as well so there's a team called Fever Enacos which was just starting off in Hungary in Budapest and was I've seen loads of homesickness there just different cultures I then have to give a special credit to one of the again the first people Everton done me wonders thinking about this story because <laughs> Carmel was at Everton and right. in the second year of my undergrad so maybe three years since I sat with Carmel in the lunchroom I was we were learning in your um cognitive biopsychology module of your undergrad at UCLan and I was looking at the the retina thinking how is this ever going to help me be a, a sports psychology practitioner and I needed to see it lived so I'm about to show my bit of my age LinkedIn wasn't a didn't exist so I went on the club website found somebody who worked there found them on Facebook kind of just sent them a message to say this is what I'm studying I need to see it because I'm, I, I don't know what it's going to look like um, and I just went into Everton took the chance they said no players or athletes will be in because it was Christmas break but if you want to come in you can have a little look around and we can have a coffee so I did and they were right I didn't see any players I didn't see anything but what I started to understand was the training ground mm, and how yeah. absolutely yeah how they set their academy up on their first team which gave me some currency so that when I went into another environment later down the line to see how they, which wasn't a football environment, but how they separated their senior squad and their academy or their pathway program. Yeah. Uh, so it was just adding to my knowledge, yeah. not just um, sports psychology specific knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that was how I started. So Jen, if I go back at that, that's an amazing journey and I'm just conscious of the depth that you've given to that insight. When did you realize that those early experiences were really beginning to inform and uh, influence what you wanted to do? Um, it was probably, I was maybe 18 and I was on my psychology A-level and we were talking about the mind, we were talking about how, um, it, it was how your parents influence who you are and what you do. Yeah. And it was really then when I, so, so 
you know, you won't mind me saying it, but I, that was the point. I was 18 thinking, okay, I've, I've physically maybe developed with my eating disorder, but psychologically that, you know, you just get better at managing it. Um, and they were speaking about parents and family life and the influence that that can have on who we are. And I started to reflect on, on me and my family life and my parents. And then I kind of went home and asked some questions and got some answers around. So I found out that my dad, who I'm very alike, um, he'd had an eating disorder when he was young. So I was like, this is, this is actually real. <laughs> the stuff that I was seeing in the textbook was lived. And then I combined it with, I've always loved sport. So in school, I, I chose not to go to a private school, to go to a, um, a sports college. I was loved dance. I loved gymnastics. Now I, I fancy myself as an average runner, but debatable <laughs> on the times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, for me, I really had that message in my mind as well about I wanted to do something that I loved because that's what everybody always said to choose a career that you love. Um, and then, you know, you'll be passionate about it every single day then. So it was a real combination of something that I could relate to personally, which is important now because one of my bugbears with, um, with people or with people in sport is yes, there's power in sharing your own personal experiences, but maybe not recommending things that have worked for you. And I see that quite a lot. So although it has influenced me to do this role younger, yeah. you know, I'm really uh, on the side of caution of using it as a tool um, and then combining it with sport and something that I actually was a passion that I loved. And I thought if I had them too, then, you know, I bounce into the training ground every day, like Tigger or being smiley or into the workplace. Um, so yeah, it was probably around that 18, 19 year old me collecting information and understanding myself a little bit more. Yeah, and, and what did you really start doing once you started realizing that the connections back to your family and your upbringing, you know, you said you spoke to your father, but personally, how did you start managing it? Because I think it's such an important time isn't it in people's lives and in the sport world and you know I'm interested to understand and I'm very conscious again of you know what worked for you might not work for others because of what you've just said but I'm also you know it's interesting how did you manage yourself on a day-to-day -day basis to to help you get through that period? I would miss out on a lot of things because what I would now label as my eating disorder brain would tell me false messages and tell me that I couldn't be in that scenario or I had to avoid that scenario. Um, and that there was times when I try and challenge it deliberately. Um, and there was also times where it consumed me and almost won. But then the reflection upon that is I'd be really mad that I'd let it take over me at that time. So then I would kind of commit to not letting that happen again. Yeah. Um, that was a, probably a big thing for me. A huge one was change of routine. Okay, brilliant. So going from your you kind of A-levels, I had a part-time job. And I was really invested, obviously, in the gym as well, in the, in the gym, as you can imagine. Um, and then dynamics changed. So my trampoline team, there was four of us on a team. We were national champions. Um, we had a great coach. We were four best friends on, you know, in the gym and away. And then it was like uni time. So one of our friends wanted to go to university in Newcastle. I had a strange period of my life where I sailed across the Atlantic. So that led me onto another path where I got a scholarship into UCLan because of that experience. And our coach, um, he tragically passed away. So the drive for us to be in the gym together four or five times a week and more on competition weeks and obviously away weekends, that changed. So then the routine changed. So then you'd be at different 
you know you'd be in different times for different meals or there was different things that you maybe had to think about okay uh, and you'd have to eat in these scenarios and then it, it sounds so simplistic but actually for a person with an eating disorder to, to eat something and then realize nothing's going to change you're not all of a sudden going to turn into a balloon or you're not all of a sudden and actually that you know being in them situations and then scenarios and recognizing and this is probably where um i learned about the chimp paradox really early on yeah. and i famously failed a module on my first postgraduate diploma or diploma yet because i wrote about the chimp paradox rather than maybe a more theoretical perspective but at the time it was so live to me and i was then lucky enough to be um, asked to go and work at burnley football club and help support uh, their 23 year old or under 21s and i was only 20 21 myself now i was linking up with dr mark nesty at the time and he was phenomenal so i wasn't totally alone um but i could see this model and i could i could then understand it in myself and i could see it and transfer that knowledge and just in an, in an educational way to the players so i'm hearing again there jen about actually you using yourself as a real life example and learning from your experiences and then taking them into your career or your professional world here trying things out understanding yourself as, as a first port of call to then actually go and work with others is that correct yeah and funny you should reflect it back to me like that because so obviously i'm quite new into nottingham forest and i was trying to work with one of our, our players um an under 23 and he was doing he was in the gym for a reason and he was been given a program and then only like this was maybe three weeks three four weeks ago i i'd done the program with him next to him on the bike with the the intern who was delivering the session and i said you know how long have we got so i kind of knew if i had time but my reason being was if he felt like i was with him in that workout and in in that session then it i could relate so that when we sit down and we discuss maybe more sensitive topics I tried it. So when he's saying, oh, Jen, like that fifth repetition, I'll just do pull out. I could know what that felt like. And again, reflecting back, I was lucky enough to have two weeks with um, GB Taekwondo. And right. oh God, what year was it? When they were testing for, um, God, what was the Olympics? They were in 2012 when they were testing right. for the Olympics. And there was a guy called Dean Leak who still works within the EIS Pathways now. And the guys team, they were doing the testing for the guys team. They were doing a circuit in Manchester in their gym. And Dean, I was so new. He said, do you want to come along and basically just understand the environment, do some testing and some questionnaires with the players? So yes, absolutely yes. I was maybe 21. And he said to me, he knew I loved training. And he said to me, why don't you get involved in the, in the circuit? And I was thinking, oh, can I? And he was like, you'll get more of a relationship with the athletes because you'll be seen to be joining in. And, you know, here we are like nine, 10 years later, still jumping on the bike, still saying, let me try and experience what you're feeling so that when we come to talk about it again, you, you know that I can understand a little bit about how it physically feels. And I, to highlight the point, I said to the intern, who is an unbelievable guy, he's lovely, he's really great. And he was like we've got another two sets to do and me and the player were like literally there oh my god and i used to teach spin as a spinning instructor when i was studying so being on the bike is is my absolute forte but i was absolutely melting and i said to the intern have you done this session and he said no i've never done it 
and we like looked at each other and again I was thinking the quality of how this could be delivered if you had a little bit of understanding of what this feels like could be so much more um and so yeah it was funny that you, you said that about using your own experiences to be in there because I still do it now. Taking those experiences then Jen you know what do you feel has made you the the practitioner you are today you know in terms of your philosophy could you summarize that in terms of you know some of the key attributes that you have learned along your way and, and I again really love the fact that you've used yourself as a learning vehicle right from the age of you know even sort of early teens it sounds like you've been learning or you've reflected back on that what what do you say, say are some of the key attributes you bring you know your strengths or approaches that you think are really key to the job you do uh, probably two big ones for me uh, one would be around conversation skills right. and the other is around energy and so I'm a basic supervisor and recently we was having a conversation with a, a supervisee who's come from somebody else and he was saying I don't have a placement I, I work in a bar um, I, you know, but if I say to them and this has happened to me a few times with my basic supervisees um, what do you do? What's your day-to-day -day job outside of getting a placement in sport? You're a student or what do you do? And they don't want to tell me because they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. And I say, no, tell me. And they're like, oh, well, I work in a bar or I work in a shoe shop. And for me, that's the best thing that they could do. Um, I worked in the gym. I was a spinning instructor. I was a class instructor. Uh, I was qualified as a PT, but I didn't really do much. I worked on customer service where it was a huge leisure center with like a David Lloyd type size, maybe bigger where it had astro pitches, it had a 5k cycle track, it was um, a UK athletics affiliated centre, it obviously had a gym, it, it had a swimming pool, there was loads of stuff going on and I think I got a lot of my skills that make me a, an effective practitioner now from then that kind of that part-time job early on. And, and what are because, those skills though? You, you mentioned the conversational yeah. skills, how would you describe those? So the listeners listening think actually those are the yeah. things that make the difference here for me. What are they? Um, it would be ask, asking questions, even when somebody doesn't want to speak. It would be probing somebody when they really don't want to speak. Um, it would be getting used to or trying to have an impact in such a small interaction or a small time. So what that may look like is in a customer service type role where somebody say, I don't know, say it's a bar, go in. And you have a tiny space, a tiny time to have an interaction and make an impact with that person and find some information out. And then they're off with their drink and they're sitting at their table, you know, and they're trying to have their meal. And in our environment, that might look like you pass somebody in a corridor or you sit opposite somebody before they're diving back out to another part of their day. You have them tiny collisions. How do you generate some quality within that? Um, and you know, then your question of how then do you do that it's your questioning it's maybe do you think about something that you want to ask them before that you've even seen them um, I mentally I don't so much write it down but I do lots of relationship mapping and scanning my own relationships and going out of my way to make sure that okay don't, maybe I've not had contact with that person yeah. but them skills can be applied to any industry not just the sporting environment so relationship mapping Jim say a little bit more about what that means to you um, so literally it looks like a brainstorm where you maybe put yourself at the middle and then think about who are you surrounded by? Who are your key relationships? Um, and then the, the strength and the quality of them relationships. So who are you, who do you have a good relationship with? And then things like, what is that relationship? 
because so for example even here at Forest I have maybe a very strong personal relationship with a coach but I'm still working out professionally where we are with that so if I, I then approach a conversation which is around practice or around something to do with their group it's almost like it's not as friendly or it's not as inviting as if I start to talk about something to do with, I don't know, beans on toast yeah. or something a little bit away from the training and the player development. So we can look at who are your key relationships? What is that relationship? The direction of that relationship as well. As I mentioned, my secondary focus for, for what I think I bring is around energy yeah. in such busy worlds and Forest specifically are brilliant at a program and writing a program. The program is packed from the the start of the day till the end, and it's organised and it's scheduled, and everybody is in different places. You know, it runs like clockwork most of the time. Um, but because everybody's so busy and focused, often then we we kind of come away from just being really positive and interacting as human beings and speaking about things that are maybe not to do at the session or you know really kind of being energetic and bringing the energy around what we're doing as well as focusing on the what that we're doing if that makes sense yeah. and again linking back to relationship mapping is seeing because of the energy that I tried to bring um, some people will gravitate towards me maybe them I think they are an important relationship for me to have so in the relationship mapping, it's looking at is which direction is the relationship? Are they always coming to me? So taking a, a minute to consciously think and scan. When do I go to that person? They always seem to end up in my conversations, but do I ever go and watch them on the training ground? Or do I ever, you know, approach them? Um, and flip, you know, flip it. We speak about people wanting sports psychology. Who are the people that you are almost investing in the relationship and you're going to and you're watering and fostering that, but they never seem to come to you? Right. And then, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. It, this is not saying that when I, when you do a relationship map, you should have all relationships should be two way. There's some that you may be gained from some that you might think, oh, okay, well, I didn't really think about it like that until I stopped and consciously thought about it this month or this week, you can do it. I do it quite regularly, just as a little check in with myself to think, who haven't I had contact with this week, maybe, or who do I need to go and spend some time with? So, yeah, it's, I don't write it down maybe as much as I should do, but I have used it with other coaches as well, again, for awareness. And that's fantastic. And I'm also picking up a little bit here about, you know, the energy that you bring to the environment and the importance of that, but also actually managing your own energy within the environment. And I say you as in terms of actually that's a really key uh, consideration for everybody, isn't it, in terms of the, how we create the culture. But actually, if we keep giving and giving and giving and giving, uh, we might well burn out. So we have to actually manage our, our internal energies as well. You know, how that plays out, I'm hearing from what you describe here in terms of the relationship. So there's a real interconnectedness between the, the energy systems, but also the relationships with a, with a positive intent. Yeah. yeah, I think the energy management is, is tough for everybody. I can't speak for any other sport other than football because uh, I've not been in there long enough. But... Are, it's it's long um, and often you, when you are the person that people want to offload to or speak to or question and your job in in conversations is facilitation or is to kind of pick up what's reality and what's an emotional response that can take a lot of our cognitive resources as well and we can be quite demanding on our cognitive resources so when we came back from lockdown 
we had two weeks we had a week of planning as staff and then we had we were straight back into pre-season and I was wiped out for them 10 days back in to the point where I thought wow oh my god this is going to be like this at this club forever but because probably we'd come out of lockdown and had so much free time to then being back in a world where people want some of your brain or every interaction that you're making um it, it was difficult and I it's one thing that I I listened to a discussion by Roberto Martinez um maybe two years ago and he was saying that he never made key decisions until after 7 p.m in in, in in the evening so his wife would make him his bowl of pasta like his favorite that he had for most nights and only then would he make any decisions around players and teams and strategy because that was his way and he said and I, I it rings true so from like my eating disorder days I'm not obsessive with exercise or, or um, restrictive with eating anymore but I know for self-care I really enjoy a run and I enjoy different routes and so on so I'm quite strict on managing and keeping that hour it doesn't have to be every day but at least once every other day or so and it's something I've always thought even if I would be an hour later than everybody else into work providing I wasn't committed to you know a meeting or a, a coach facing workshop or anything like that if I was on site an hour later because I'd been for a run and anybody ever commented nobody ever has but if anyone did ever comment I would be quite happy to say the reason is this is what I was doing this morning and this is why so do you want me to come in cranky and quiet and maybe agitated all day because I haven't looked after myself in the last two days or you know me coming in an hour later and you getting the energy and me saying come on tell me what we missed what what's going on and you know, really embedding in the day-to-day -day processes and being present then. Um, and it was a thing when I was at Burnley, so my old head of coaching, who I was previously line managed by, he would always, I don't know whether it was just telepathic, but he would call me and obviously I wouldn't answer because I'd be out running and he'd, he, he knew. And then when I've moved to Forest and still spoke to him and he called me a couple of days ago and I was out running and he texted me saying, I, you, don't even know what, you don't even need to tell me why you haven't answered. I know that you're running. Um, so it becomes a real, you know, and it's a non-negotiable because you then get the best version of me in the environment. And linking back to the Martinez example, he said that high performance people know what works for them. And then you have to be disciplined not to deviate away from that every day. And that really, really stuck with me. Uh, be disciplined not to deviate away from what makes you perform well. Jim, what other things make you perform well in, from a psychological perspective? Because I'm, I'm, I'm also very conscious that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people in the world that we work in are, are very good at um, giving the medicine, but sometimes not so good at taking it. I'm hearing very strongly that you're, you're taking your medicine around your running and your activity and your physical health very well. Are there any other techniques or habits that you use to perform at your best? So since I've joined Forest, I have started a weekly reflective diary. Uh, it's not nothing personal it's a professional one and this is because trying to create a new psychological system with some longevity and strategy has been difficult um, and it's been fun and it's been challenging and I use the analogy of a ship sailing and I'm trying to kind of keep my ship sailing in the right direction but sometimes my ship's been pulled to the left sometimes it's been pulled to the right I think one day I called my mum and my mum was a works in um, organizational psychology for a big american oil company um, but i called her and i think i actually said mom there's pirates on my ship they're actually trying to take over my ship but what i recognized is the highs and the lows of a week 
were hijacking me at the start of this year. And that was, you know, it was so different from me from the previous work at Burnley, where it was quite known what where I sat in terms of on the coaching team, who was my remit, the types of what to expect from me. And then coming in here, it, it was just different. So I was trying not to kind of get drunk on the highs or the lows. So I started this weekly, just a reflection. And that's really been great. And then I know there's lots of research that, so when I'm speaking to Paul McCarthy, who is the program leader at um, Glasgow, where I'm doing my doctorate, when I spoke to him, he obviously is once he's thinking to read the research around creative writing, and it's it, and it has really helped. Uh, the other thing that I try and do is just give it a time, and this is a strategy that us as sports psychs will use with our athletes. But when I get home, or even on my way home, I will because I do like to talk and I do like to waffle on is having that time to, if it was a chimp paradox, exercise your chimp and just deload um, and then move on. I'm really conscious not to let it drip through the night or drip through to the next day. How do you deload? You know, because again, I think lots of us have lots of those things going on in our head and the principle's great, but how do you do it? So my, I will tell my boyfriend and I will say to him, I just need you to listen to me for a minute. And he, we are like chalk and cheese. He is probably the, if I search the world for a more emotionally unaware person, I don't think I could find one more unemotionally aware than, than the one I've got. But I will just say, I just need you to listen to me a sec. And I'll waffle on and I can see him looking, thinking, oh, this is well above my head. Yeah. But then after that, I say, thanks for listening to me. And then we just needed that time. And then we'll be off talking about something different. Again, me and my mum was a really powerful tool. And this isn't really just saying or people thinking Jen's really lucky because her mum worked in organisational psychology. So she understands because the minute she tries to start recommending or saying to me, oh, you should do this or think of this, I might as well put the phone down because that's not what I want from her at that time. I genuinely just want to verbalise what's gone on. Um, so, yeah, being, I'm being honest in that time. Get it out, speak about it. I encourage our staff and players if you don't have a non-judgmental person that can just listen in that time create a voice note because they the, the athletes specifically but they don't want to write things down as much mm. but nowadays the voice notes are quite trendy so i'll say you know create a voice note password protect it obviously on your phone but if that's a deload mechanism for you mm. then we absolutely do it mm. we absolutely capture that so definitely that my running and probably just having that hour deload or not even an hour sometimes is is really important i think you, you make a really great point there when you say you, you actually ask people to give you what you need so there's something for me about you know you've mentioned what makes me perform at my best is actually knowing myself and what i need and therefore you've gone to others and said look listen to me please that's all i need from you because that's what i need to make me feel better and actually articulating it rather than allowing other people to have to guess what your needs are and putting it out because I, I guess in the role that you also play if, if people articulate to you what they need then you can perform that that part and, and and help them become a better version of themselves absolutely one of the key challenges i feel for me is helping or upskilling staff in recognizing what the athletes do need because they're eight times out of ten they they can't communicate it in that way or they're not as clear even with me on a one-to-one -one basis which is not player facing is not my preferred way of working so much well it just leads me on so you've, you've mentioned so much about you and what you've been doing which is just fantastic now take us into your environment either at Burnley or at Nottingham Forest w what is it you're doing and how do you do it 
so it's this they're so different roles my role at Burnley I was on the coaching team I was line managed by the head of coaching I was the only female on that team I had never actually played a game of football in in my life I did do a coaching badge though so that did help me um and it was working with the staff to really create the right environment and culture um, now that came at a cost where I did move from the sports science team from player facing one-to-one intervention focused work so when I moved to the coaching team it did come at a cost where we were left with no player facing support and then just as I was leaving we were able to get a really strong um, sports psychology practitioner in to do player facing work so that was that's probably my niche is looking at staff development and the reason why the personal development is attached to the title is to help people understand that the discussions that they will have with me are not just about um or, or they are not just about the player and an intervention for that player it's actually looking at themselves and where they want to go and how we can help that in this environment what they bring to our environment that's different to other people and again linking into what you said to me before about how can we help them be the best version of them there's lots of research out there that says almost that coaches are actors themselves so how do we help them understand their strengths their weaknesses uh, their previous experiences and how that then influences them just as a coach in our sessions Right. So really by helping the coach to be the best version of themselves, we would assume and appreciate that that would have a knock on effect to helping make better footballers and better young people. Is that the, the parallel system that you're, you're, you're talking there? Absolutely. Uh, there's a key message that I've thought for a while and it was what we really drove at Burnley and it's informed a part of my practice now. But two people have since in the last couple of weeks said it to me that it's not necessarily in the the content of what you deliver but in the vehicle or the mechanism and the how we deliver so what i really was kind of tasked to do at burnley is work in that space and see what each individual coach could bring different to what the other coach could bring although they may have all been on the same b license or a license badge looking at that mechanism for delivery and how and getting creative with that and giving coaches the confidence because i think it is it's not as new now as it maybe previously was when three years ago when we started this kind of discussion and, um, and body of work but the relationship based work with your athletes is so important mm. and Jen how's this approach received now then you know when you when you're in the in the academy with working with the coaches um it's it's different I think it's the first response mm-hmm. um and at first I think they're a little bit apprehensive and I think they think I'm asking questions, awkward questions that, that I don't know the answers to and neither do they. But I'm asking them because I know that I want them to think. So, for example, I would ask them, how do we influence our players? And they'll say, oh, they come in and, I, you know, I say hi to them and I, I maybe I play them in this position. OK, but so how do we influence them? Well, I build trust with them. OK, how do we build trust with them? Well, generally, we just build trust. You know, and I used to think they think I don't have a clue about this football environment um, because I almost threw the question back. But actually what I was really trying to do is define their behaviours if they could or make them consciously aware. Yeah. And then when you get the first one, to, so we, for example, at Forest, it's slightly different where I'm still building something for player facing as well as 
coach education as well. So wearing both hats is difficult. When I've got when I first worked with a coach here, where I was in the moment explain and see, we could really um, look at how empathy plays out in this scenario. And it was at a game against Liverpool. It was a side of the pitch example, and because that's another key skill around articulating and actually living the the messages or the relationship based work that we're talking about, not just doing a presentation in the classroom. You know, saying it. I will steal a a nice little quote from somebody that I've recently been interacting with, but about saying it from the sideline. You, we have got to be able to still say it from the sideline. So, you know, this, this person was brilliant in just articulating that point to me. But once you've got a game to say, okay, so that's what we're talking about empathy. It might look like this for you in that moment, but it may look like this for the player. And we had that discussion. Then the coach then started to see that this is a lot bigger than just you working with a player on a one-to-one -one and how they can have that impact in the moment and they can ultimately affect the 11 players in their team and one thing I've said to our, our staff we had a bit of a review after pre-season was being new here is I, I can't influence what I don't know so why else you may not think that that's relevant to tell me this information because key things might happen and they'd say to me oh Jen I don't know if you should know this and they'd tell me and I think, oh my God, where are the pieces of this going to happen? Or, you know, what's the debris? And how might we have improved this if I had known an hour ago rather than just doing it? So a real key point I said to them was just keep me, keep me in the loop. Just keep telling me things. Even if you don't think it's got anything to do with me, somewhere down the line, it will help me. Because if I am doing a player one-to-one -one and the player's giving me their perspective and it might be a really emotional perspective I might just have a nugget of information around the coach's intention at that time so I've got a barometer to help me understand the bigger picture of things not just a one-sided story so it's really about keep you know keep speaking to me and as I say, I did say if I can't influence what I don't know um it's great Jen. you're sending my thought process to go towards the ideas of multidisciplinary teams which I know you are part of them we talk a lot about that in the academy setting but also a lot of the principles you talked about are not, not only relevant to football, they're relevant to businesses and teams and, and in any industry in terms of how do we best work together to help individuals perform at their best. Do you see that as a, these are actually quite generic attributes and principles for high performing teams? Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I did before, and I missed it so much before I joined Nottingham Forest was... I met a lady called Nicole Zub. I don't know if I mentioned her anywhere publicly previously, but she is actually director of HR for Kellogg's, so the cereal brand. Yeah. And a big part of her role is talent development. So when I first met her, I thought, wow, actually, I'm sure there's discussions that I could, originally I thought I could really learn from you and you could help me develop these transferable skills in our world. There's gonna be some crossover. And when I met her and looked at what they were doing and showed her what we were doing in sport there were so many things that she was saying oh, you you know like like i've made said i had made a, a noise at the fact that i would love to go in another environment in the future um, and i know sports psychology now is seeping out into the military and into the police i think there's some graduates from stafford university who are working with with the police forces and i've recently seen somewhere there's a phd working with the military you know so absolutely non non sport specific environments, but real high pressure environments as well. Now the model that I so I am a big advocate for transformational leadership, 
and I know you know the, the Twitter critiques might say all the bad things about it and I do try my hardest to keep my air of caution and say you know what what were the critiques just I don't want to be blindsided but I still I think it gives us good currency to have conversations around relationships uh, without maybe it seeming too scary for coaches so it's quite simple I really do find it applicable um, and when we start to look at the transformation leadership model it was originally a business model and then we've kind of nicked it in and put it into sport or Jean Cote and Jen Turnage who they are the first ones to apply it to sport but ultimately it was a, a business principle and it's the same with other tools that we may use like the I don't know like the change curve might be one where again that came from uh, military helping them deal with a loss in the truth or yeah. yeah and then we can apply it I know that's applied in business for redundancies and strategy management and things so there are so many transferable skills which is again why I was really keen to keep the personal development part yeah. of the job yeah. because it's not just about the football intervention based work that typically the sports psychology title may bring actually there's a lot around our own personal development and our own high performance behaviors within our discussions and i'm hearing is your role is to be that uh, catalyst and educator to, to expose the people in the academy both coaches and players and build the philosophy around actually there's so many different avenues and places which we can learn from you know and actually try and encourage people to make sense of those other contexts and then try and bring them back to their world is that a, a fair reflection as well absolutely yeah there's times when I specifically will speak about non-football experiences right. with our coaches and see how we can then transfer that into our world and maybe when's the right place to share that or not share that and then flip side if we are working with a coach or or a player often we'll be talking about something and they want to say oh that makes sense because my wife says this to me and I'm, I'm like this at home or the player will say oh yeah my girlfriend's always saying that to me or I'm like that with the kids as well so it's really a vehicle of two ways for bringing into our environment different things and ultimately learning things in our environment and then you know you're the one constant within both is the individual so if we can work on the individual it will definitely influence and benefit you know the multiple environments that they move within yeah i think it's it's exciting so jen if i just change gear a little bit here and i take us towards you know the role that you play uh, i'm very conscious that a, a lot of our listeners will either be you know parents or teachers coaches leaders but they might also have children aspiring to work in the environment that you know be a footballer in your environment what kind of advice or what kind of uh, themes do you pick up and see quite often working with um, young aspiring footballers from a psychological point that they could be kind of mindful of and, and play their part to support the work that you do and academy coaches? Uh, so I think the two big pillars for us at the moment are pressure is understanding right. that parents bring a lot of pressure or can bring even by just being present or being successful in yourselves or by the way you speak you can bring pressure and secondly is maybe understanding emotions and how important developing emotional literacy is for our young athletes now i say young we would still look at both of them factors in an under 23 squad yeah because typically our systems of psychology in football or our, our football systems haven't allowed them skills around emotional literacy to, to play out or to be developed so we yeah. still see a lot of 22 year old athletes who've got potentially their own family mm -hmm. which is the case and so it, it is absolutely the case that 
I will sit and speak to them or you know, we'll, we'll go for a walk and we'll speak about it. And they're like, I, I, I just can't tell you, do you know what I'm thinking? I can't tell you what I'm feeling. So um, emotional literacy being what? How, how would we describe that for those people that are not familiar with the term? Um, so being able to recognise their emotions, right. then being able to articulate that and then being able to maybe recognise the impact that that has on their behaviour and what they do next with that. Yeah. Um, because I think typically the system, especially in our environment, is quite what I would call superficial, where the conversations are just surface level. And again, I'll mention another key influence in my thought of this is um, a guy called Dr. James McCarran. I don't know if you, if anybody, well, a lot of people will know about him. <laughs> Uh, but he I was speaking to him this is about three years ago now about levels of conversation and he we had a really great discussion where he showed me a model and said actually we never really get to what people actually believe because it's all superficial um, and that is what the football system unintentionally you know by no means is it deliberate but unintentionally facilitates a really passive conversations or passive comments so by the time they get to 22 if they've been in a system all of their their world or all of their you know their journey they're not equipped to have quality conversations right. that maybe if you went to university and you had done a breakout group you'd have to have debates you'd have to think critically you'd have to speak up you'd have to deliver in front of a group um so yeah that's why we probably don't see it even monday i was speaking to a senior player and I said, who, who are your friends? Like, who are you? Are you friends and teammates? And he said, I'm not even really sure I know what that means, Jen. Mm. And that, you know, that is somebody who is in our environment, a really dominant person and everybody loves him and so forth. So again, the quality around the, the conversations and the awareness of what's important. I don't think our environments have previously been greater. And Jen, why, why does that matter? And how does that help? players become better footballers would you say I think I know but I'm just wondering what your view would be the importance of these quality conversations what does it give a player and that deeper emotional literacy well two things for me and this is an influence from Burnley and my old head of coaching but we by the time a player comes to 22 he's potentially had a, like a mini pro professional career of 10 years if he's been in the system from 10 he's gone in the gym every day he's done analysis a couple of times a week and he plays a game and he's been shouted at and he's been picked up other times he's been a captain maybe weekly so they've had this mini career by that age so for them to continue that and want to come and do this every day we have to make them feel like they want to come in the building so we have to make them enjoy coming in and feel like that they people care that they have an impact they have a say because these are then all the things that we, if we're looking down your self-determination theory, then football becomes a huge part of who they are, not because they have to do it. So really encouraging them quality conversations. You know, typically humans like to talk about themselves, um, even the ones that are maybe a little bit more difficult to probe, but really to create that connection between a staff member and a player where they want to then go in. It's like I was speaking to a player the, the, only this week saying, I'd love us to get into a world where, or you know that feeling when you walk into a lunchroom or a meeting room and you find somebody that you've got a really good connection with and you think, I'm going to sit by them. And they're almost like a safe space to sit by because you know that you can speak with them and that you're not going to be trying to get out of that conversation after 20 minutes or that there's going to be no conversation. Like that's really a culture where 
people want to be in that space then. I think it's important for the long term or the longevity in the career. And then the secondary one around um, performance is if they can, goes back to when you said to me, I can articulate what I want, which is funny. Um, but if they can, if ultimately they can tell us what they're thinking and feeling, then it can help underpin what we do next. Yeah, absolutely. So they're the two real. And, and it also draws a full circle for me back to, you know, you sharing your story about you really at a young age, beginning to recognize who you were, what made you tick, how the eating disorder impacted on you and influenced you in the way that you behaved. And by knowing that you, you mentioned the words, you know, I built some strategies and I became more aware of, of the impact it had on me um, to progress through life and actually nearly even used that in a way to steer you into the work that you do. And I guess by helping others do the same, then we can actually maximise what's really going on at a deeper level to help them become a better version of themselves and a better, better footballer, ultimately, in the context that you're currently working in. So I just see it's, there's a, some lovely parallels in terms of it's, it's about individual development, this. Absolutely, which is why we keep the personal development yeah. on my title. No, we do. I don't necessarily do like the, the world of football has started going to define in people's roles even further which creates problems where now we have mandatory safeguarding, which is not a problem. Absolutely not saying that. I love safeguarding. Uh, we have player care roles as well. And the part of their job is to create player develop, individual development plans for players. So they've, you know, they force them to actually sit and think. I know in the AIS, they have the kind of dual careers pathways. They're really, really important. Um, and there is a lot of crossover because we would say you can't, detach the person from so the performer yeah. yeah so there's a lot of crossover lots of difficult discussions and at times teddy's of the pram if it sits with one person or doesn't but ultimately you are right it's personal development that underpins our player development yeah great stuff well jen we could go on i'm sure so much more because it's such an interesting and, and impactful area of work that you're doing and we're talking about what what I'd, I'd like to do is so is just narrow us down and ask you a few quick fire questions just to finish off the uh, the conversation so my first question for you would be in terms of references or books can you suggest any good reads any good books that have really influenced you that others might be interested to engage in that might help them actual books so yeah. I always go back to the original Anderson 2002 doing sports psychology and the reason why is not because I always want to know about the same information that's in there but actually it helps gives us clarity again on what we're doing because in our world you can be pulled from pillar to post um, and you can get a little bit lost in what is the impact that you're supposed to be having so sometimes it's nice just to strip it all back and go back to that book and look at some of the what were the original pillars of sports psychology and intervention-based work so that is always if I'm feeling a little bit lost and especially like I would say I like to work with coaches maybe more than players and then sometimes I think if I'm having a challenging day or a challenging week oh am I really barking up the wrong tree with this or am I way off it actually it's good to go back to that book and have a little look again at the literature just to remind yourself whether you are on the right lines or not so definitely that one and uh, the doing football psychology book which is a dr mark nesty book that is a really great one even now for when you work with staff and you're facilitating an environment that's a really great one uh definitely for sports like there um i'm trying to think 
do you know um, can I give you a podcast yeah yeah please because, do yeah yeah this is more of my preferred way but there's a yeah. really great podcast called the learning scientist yeah. and it's two American researchers two ladies and they are um I think the area of our neurology and it's not a sports specific one it's more for teaching but it's great and it's a real they talk about interleaving and scattered practice and you know it's not your atypical sports psychology go-to so for influencing systems and coaches design of sessions and or our environment and how we develop that learning there that's a really great one it's called the learning scientist brilliant gosh loads of good stuff for people to to delve into and find out both on the sort of football psychology but also more more holistic and general people development i think which is really which is really great in terms of you you've also given us an insight into how you perform at your best what three tips would you give to say how you prepare yourself to perform both mentally and physically what were the three things that you would do to to make sure that you are the best version of yourself um be strict with your time so your you know your sleeping routine is so important i'm going to speak football specific now but the days are so busy from the start to the end that you need to have that you make sure that you get your right sleep and it's quality sleep as well definitely that have a deload or an outlet so i know people who are supervised um that, that use them people definitely and what would be the final one have them people that don't know about football so that's really important for say i'm a scouser yeah. and neither of my mum or dad are actually into football so when i go home they, they they don't understand why i can't just pick a day next week that i'm going to take off or why i can't tell them where i'm going to be on christmas day or anything like that but that's so good because when you go there and they they tell you and i know i've worked with athletes who do this with their children and something that's so insignificant to to you is a huge deal to them and it gives you a bit of perspective it's really healthy to have that or then people around you jen you've given a great insight into your past as well what advice would you give to a teenage version of you now don't worry about things as much <laughs> i don't know whether even this is advice to my 30 year old self now or not <laughs> yeah um as we previously alluded to i may um on the side of that perfectionist being a double-edged sword but i'm constantly asking questions constantly wanting to speak to new people which is when i go and do this i am really intrigued by what they do and i crave that knowledge but then as soon as i get that knowledge i may be worried that oh i'm not doing that can I do that? Is that something, you know, so really just trust yourself, yeah. trust the process, have an open mind. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Lovely. I love it for those perfectionists within us, but also those worriers in us as well, you know, to sometimes we often worry about things and then work out that it wasn't worth worrying about. Some really great, simple advice there. Two more questions here then. You've also mentioned so many people in your life that have influenced you along the way and you've kind of pointed them out and i appreciate this is a difficult one to to ask but can you can you name two or three people that you feel have really been pivotal in either influencing or directing you through your career and made a real big impact yeah so i would say jason blake who was the first academy manager that i worked under at burnley even now he's brilliant for them professional conversations um around like a senior management level and he knows you know he knows me as a person as well as professionally so definitely jason 
he's living in Canada as well now running um, a, a Canadian soccer academy over there so definitely Jason uh, Mark Nesty from a, a practitioner development point I loved Mark from when I first met him to unfortunately he's retired this year and I didn't want him to retire so I just wanted to capture his brain and just think we need to keep you so that is a bit more maybe sports specific knowledge as a practitioner and anything that happens I kind of would ask Mark's professional opinion on that um would you know what's really been interesting and I think this is prominent for coaches and athletes um is somebody that we both know but Lewis Craig for me and the reason why I would say Lewis is because he's been constant through difficult decisions and different times where maybe people haven't agreed with what I've wanted to do or done or you know decisions even for me to kind of come over to Forest you know, Burnley were really great in saying that they wanted me to stay and I appreciate that but having Lou there no no matter in that non-judgmental space and almost just to laugh at and say oh I've said this or I'm going to do this um, and then obviously him as well he's had lots of different change of paths having that one constant person who are just always going to be there whether you're having the best day or the worst day or you're making a good decision or they're thinking oh no you've made a really bad decision that's him and then probably finally again it's probably a personal and a professional one but Ian Jones at Burnley old head of coaching he was great and I don't think I would be doing coach education as confidently as I am if Ian hadn't have almost chucked me in there with the coaches and said go and have an impact so then people definitely there's a real theme for me there something around people that you can trust but also people that will tell you it as it is you know, so you can really go with them through the, the highs and the lows of your career, you know, but both very knowledgeable. And you also mentioned a couple of times they know you both personally and professionally, which I think is really powerful. Um, so, yeah, I was having a conversation just to finish off, Dave, um, with a member of staff here about is it OK to get different things from different relationships <laughs> as an adult or should your partner be? You know, I don't feel like I can speak to my partner about this. OK. And is that OK? you know, like almost normalizing and help recognize. And so what do you speak to that person for? So I had a, a conversation with Jason Blake in the summer just before we came back from lockdown and I hadn't spoken to him much this year, maybe a couple of WhatsApps or I think I'd done a webinar for, for their academy earlier on in lockdown, but nothing about us, you know, me personally. And I was able to just kind of message him and say, I need your brain. And within 45 minutes, he was, okay it's this time in Canada what works for you I'm going to be on the road here and it was a very to the point conversation there was not really a hi how are things going for you it was okay tell me I said here's my here's my thinking these are my issues what do you think and then he said I think this this and this I think you should do this this and this phone went down okay let me know next week you know it wasn't a whereas I'd maybe called Lewis and it's we're talking about everything and anything um, so it's yeah really using them different people for different things and that's healthy and knowing what you need at the right at, at different times because otherwise I've made the mistake I mentioned my partner before where you try and speak to them about something really important in your environment and because they maybe don't understand what your environment looks like if they don't give you the response you want so you then end up in the in the same predicament or maybe worse than when you started and I do it with the athletes and with the coaches who do you go to and why so yeah really important well and and jen I, i'm smiling because i love it when you you're actually talking so much about how you've brought your relationship map to life you know and how you used it and you you know you referenced it earlier on in terms of the importance of considering it and reflecting on it but 
I can see now how you're using it so much more, you know, using different people for different things, both giving and taking. So it's really great to, to bring that life to life. So thank you for that. My very last question, okay, you've been so kind enough to be open and honest and vulnerable in sharing your sports story and the journey that you've had in your career to date. And, you know, I'm so excited for where it goes next. But you've also shown to me, you know, the importance of learning and, um, and being curious about other people and what they do. Um, whose sports story would you be really curious to find out more about and why? Dave, you... We, this next sports story should be Claire Davidson. Um, I thought my journey was a bit unorthodox, but Claire is a phenomenal practitioner um, and her story is brilliant. So Claire Davidson is definitely, I can't wait to listen to that one. Leave that one with us, hey, Jen. Well, there's a nice little challenge there, and we'll try and get Claire on, on the Sports Stories podcast at some stage. But just to, to finish off, um, I can't say thanks enough to, um, to your open, your honesty. You know, your very natural styles really come across, which, you know, I had no doubt it would do. But I think we haven't just scooted on the surface, which is what you talked a little bit around in terms of some of the environments we work in is a little bit superficial. We certainly haven't. You know, you sharing some of your stories from your earlier days and how that's really influenced and impacted on your life and actually made the practitioner who you are and given you the style and the approach where relationships really matter, but also actually getting under the skin really matters and having those really purposeful, um, straightforward conversations to really help people become the best versions of themselves is really clear. So Jen, thanks ever so much. If people would like to follow and track you a little bit further and find out a bit more how you do and what you do, or make contact, how might they be able to get in contact with you? Uh, so I do have a Twitter handle. Uh, it's just at Lacey underscore Jen. And I do use LinkedIn. Probably not as much as I should do, but send me a message on LinkedIn. That's definitely the best way. Great stuff. Well, I'll make sure those details are on the show notes for the, for the podcast. But once again, Jen, thanks ever so much. Good luck in whatever comes next, both at Forest and in your career. And um, we'll have you back on the Sports Stories podcast, hopefully in the future. Take care. Thanks Thanks, very much. Thanks for having me. Bye. So there we have a fabulous insight to the sports story of Jen Lace. I love it when our guests really open up and help us understand who and what has made them the person they are today. I felt so humbled to hear how the eating disorder Jen faced as a young girl informed and impacted on her and continues to do so today. Her experiences clearly shape the work she does and the approach she takes to her work. I also like the psychological approaches and principles she takes to her life and the people she works with. For me, Jen is a passionate people developer using her learnt experiences and knowledge whilst constantly being open to new ideas and approaches. It was noticeable the number of people she has approached and maintained contact with and learnt from over her career. Her social and professional network is clearly important to her and used effectively. And it was also logged that a previous guest on the Sports Stories podcast, Lewis Craig, is a key support to her. You might like to listen to his story on episode number 13. I guess in summary, she is looking to take and apply to herself what she helps and gives to others, which is great to see. Two of the pillars Jen mentioned, that of emotional literacy and pressure, are the catalysts for the questions I'd like to pose to you. So the first question is, how do you find talking about emotional things, both positive and negative? And the second question is, in your current position in life, How do you create and alleviate pressure situations for yourself and others? Now, you may not have any quick answers, and that's okay. 
take some time to reflect on the questions. Maybe talk to somebody and then have the conversation. If you're looking for resources or information to help you, then keep a lookout on the Sports Stories website and in the Sports Stories Academy. I'd love to hear how you get on. Right, a few last reminders. Likes and comments on Apple Podcasts are really appreciated. Please help spread the word. Feedback and insights on the show are also valued. We can then continue to develop ourselves. And lastly, there will be an episode with a never shared before story next week. So tune in. That just leaves me to say thanks again to today's guest, Jen Lace. I do hope you have a great week and I look forward to you being with me, Dave Levine, again next week.